This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Chris Kane, the founder and CEO of Jounce. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So some housekeeping. So you should go to Architecture TV, sign up for our newsletter. We have a lot of exciting things coming out. Next week, we have our 100th episode or our 100th recording. Uh, in less than a year, we have 100 pieces of content for subscribers. And next week, we have an interesting one because I, I spoke to the head of strategy for the trade desk. And we went into some depth on UID2 and on Gemini, which are really interesting topics I learned a lot about. So go to Architecture TV, sign up for the newsletter, sign up for a paid subscription, and you'll get full access to that content. All right. So, Chris, you have been doing Jounce for quite some time. I love the fact that you're sort of a micro consultancy, like you, you picked a very tight topic and went as deep as possible. So tell us about Jounce and what you do. Yeah. So we are, as you said, extremely narrow in, in scope. All my team and I think about is how money moves from DSPs to publishers. We've built out a whole bunch of data systems, partly on the back of public data, partly on the back of private data sharing agreements with brands and agencies and DSPs, so that we can really build a data-driven perspective on the current state of the supply chain, track changes over time, and then you know the, the main output of all of it is a research product. We publish monthly research along with uh, webinars, dashboards, and so on, and ad tech companies, publishers. Brands and agencies subscribe to that product to get plugged into what is actually happening in the supply chain at the moment, how supply path optimization initiatives are evolving, and um, and why, so that those companies can kind of prepare for both industry trends that might be tailwinds and industry trends that might be headwinds. So, so what's an example of a piece of data that you publish that is actionable by one of those parties? Sure. Well, uh, you know, w- one of the metrics we've tracked for a long time is trying to put some math and some specificity around what are the what's the size and sources of unproductive reselling in the bid stream and the answer is it's big you know about 40 percent of the bid stream is just sort of like unnecessary multi-hop reselling that buyers could transact through more directly and that is pretty concentrated you know like the, the source of that 40 percent of the bid stream is highly concentrated among a relatively small number of sellers and so we are in our monthly reports, sort of benchmarking all of this, but also through daily updating dashboards, specifically identifying what are the sources of, of wasteful reselling that DSPs should be blocking wholesale, that brands and agencies should be blocking for their individual campaigns. A DSP can blacklist sellers and thereby improve the uh, ROI on their spend. Is that is that a proven output of, of what you do? Or is I it just kind of logical? That every, no, everything until the very last thing you said, it's what I've learned is that DSPs are not primarily motivated to drive the ROI of campaigns. DSPs are primarily motivated to expand their operating margins. And that is more the case today than it was six months ago as investor priorities have shifted. 
And so, you know, costs are under attack at DSPs and, you know, setting aside the, the possibility of doing deep cuts on headcount, the next biggest cost that DSPs can go and attack is the cost of processing millions of bid requests per second. We can help DSPs identify, well, what are the giant pools of bid requests that are just unproductive that you can eliminate with and therefore reduce your operating costs with no impact on your ability to, to reach, you know, the entirety of the open internet. So you, you're helping them drive costs down, but one would expect, and maybe I'm wrong on this, that might affect top line as well, though, right? Because DSPs always want to show, you know, strong top line, have top line growth for, from a number of perspectives, or, or am I not looking at this correctly? I think what you're suggesting is like, hey, if you turn off parts of the bidstream, don't you lose the ability to reach the entirety of the open internet? Yes. So firstly, I don't think that's true. But more importantly, there is only one DSP today that has the capacity to listen to the entire bidstream, um, and that's DB360. Every other DSP operates at some sort of a QPS threshold, might be 10 million QPS or 5 million QPS or 1 million QPS, but every DSP is working with some fixed capacity of how many auctions they can process per second. And so they're already not listening to the full bidstream. The exercise is how do I make the portion of the bidstream that I have the capacity to listen to as productive as possible? And so what we're trying to help DSPs do is use their fixed capacity as effectively as possible. So one mystery to me is why those non-productive duplicative QPS streams would ever win. If it's the exact same thing you get elsewhere, but with a higher take rate, it should be at a systematic disadvantage and should never win. Why do these duplicative streams win? Well, I think if there's if there's anybody in the industry who can tell me I'm wrong, it's you. So tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and I think DSPs get way too much credit for how smart their their bidding logic is. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of randomness in the way that DSP campaigns operate. And by issuing lots of duplicate bid requests for the single impression, sometimes through ludicrously inefficient multi-hop reselling supply chains, publishers and the ad tech companies that monetize inventory for those publishers exploit the randomness of DSPs and can harvest a whole range of basically random bid prices from a DSP, making it more likely that one of those responses is a high gross bid, which even after a bunch of inflated supply chain fees works out to be a high net bid to the publisher. Yeah, let's talk about this more because this is kind of fascinating. Uh, I had heard a story once that when a major DSP, who I won't name, uh, first announced its SPO initiatives, um, their bid rates started going down on some SSPs. And one of the SSPs just duplicated all their QPS. They just made two requests for every one request they actually had, and it increased the rate of winning. Is that the sort of shenanigans that you see happening? Uh, that's a trick that, that I think is um, sort of coming back to life in the connected TV environment at the moment. And I'm not sure why publishers are getting away with it. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff from like 2017 where DSPs were like, you know, requiring their exchange partners to publicly attest to not issuing duplicate requests for a single impression because it was such an easy trick that exploited volume bias and harvested demand from DSPs. But like the problem, I think, as an industry is like we keep combating tactics. And so it's, it's sort of like, yeah, I squash one tactic like, you know, multi-bid requests, you know, duplicating requests. But then the sell side invents other ways to achieve auction duplication. They work with 25 SSPs. They integrate each SSP through pre-bid and TAM and open bidding. You know, there's, like a, there's a variety of ways that publishers and their ad tech partners can continue to exploit this tendency of DSPs to sort of 
bid more often when publishers issue duplicate auctions. And um, and I just I, I just don't think DSPs are going to win this sort of like cat and mouse game of trying to squash specific tactics. Yeah, so we, we're going to talk about your recent report. You just published the State of the Open Internet report. But I just want to bring out one data point, which was as of early 2023, the average RTB-enabled publisher had direct partnerships with 25.3 monetization platforms. That seems like a large number. It's an outrageous number. You almost run out of SSPs. To confirm, Chris, that's 25 SSPs, or is that their just whole ad tech stack? It's 25 distinct monetization companies that write checks to the publisher. Does this include identity? Does this include... No, no. it's companies who sell ads and pay the publisher for those ads, pay the publisher directly. So one of the things that comes up a lot is that these are not all necessarily broad SSPs. Like a company that has a value-added ad unit, let's say like a Teeds mm-hmm. that does an outstream. Tabula or Outbrain. Or, or, or a Tabula or an Outbrain. They would be included in that 25 number. Is that correct? That is correct. So how do you think about that? Is there like the there's there is there like a generic SSP and then a specialist SSP and then uh, publishers should be um, kind of pitting those against each other to reduce the number or well, publishers not even there? I guess two thoughts on that. First, which maybe we come back to later. This insane that insane number is a perfectly rational response to the way the DSPs operate, and maybe we can come back to that. But like, it's not like publishers are being idiots here. Like, this is. The perfectly rational thing to do as a publisher, and publishers are doing the thing that's in their financial history. They're doing the thing that DSPs reward, even though DSPs say they don't want that. And second, maybe to the point, you, to the question you actually asked, I think this concept of, you know, special unit vendors versus sort of like omni-channel exchanges is a false one and becoming kind of irrelevant because it is very, very hard to name a company that truly only sells its special ad product. Right. All the companies you just named don't just sell their ad product. They also are working their way to be header bidding partners to sell banner ads, you know? And so the companies that historically were these sort of like special unit vendors and are still sort of perceived in market as being the special unit vendors are very much attempting to compete for commodity inventory as well in order to drive up even more auction duplication to harvest even more of the DSP randomness. Yeah, I think at Beeswax, when we did a seller.json analysis, uh, the number one seller was Outbrain, and like number number two was Taboola, <laughs> because they were they were selling their own units plus RTB units on virtually every publisher they've worked with. Yeah, a little bit of an aside here, but there's um, advertiser perceptions. They do this um, yeah. survey every year of like, who are the most popular SSPs and how many SSPs publishers work with. And it's an extremely insightful report because it demonstrates how disconnected the market-facing teams that publishers are from the actual operations of their inventory. Like, nobody thinks about Taboola or Outbrain or Teeds or Kinetics when they talk about, you know, their, like, kind of air quotes, their SSP. They right. think about the SSP that runs their private marketplaces. But the reality on the buy side of the market is what buyers actually see is an unbelievable range of duplicate requests from dozens of vendors for every website, every mobile app, and every CTB app. And there's just this I think there's this giant disconnect between the way publishers think they present their inventory to buyers and what buyers actually see in the bid stream. Yeah. I, I, when the SSPs first came out, when Rubicon Project put out their manifesto and all that fun stuff, um, there was a general perception that was wrong that the SSP market was going to shape up like the publisher ad server market, where publishers would have one, maybe two preferred SSPs, and it would be a really great enterprise business and maybe even a better enterprise business in the ad server business. 
because it got a higher take rate. And that actually turned out to be totally false uh, because publishers found that they could incrementally add SSPs. And every time they added another one, their yield would go up by a couple cents here and there. And there was really no reason other than private deals to have a preferred SSP. So, so firstly, that is like so starkly different from the buy side of the market. It, you, it is. Find me a buyer who works with 30 DSPs. That's totally counter to the incentives of buyers. Like the whole point of programmatic buying is to concentrate your investment through one, maybe two or three DSPs. Like that, that's the whole value prop. That's why you're doing programmatic buying. You're trying to unify your buying. Publishers have exactly the opposite incentive. Yeah. So what's the answer, Chris, on the publisher side, on the, on the sell side? How would you design this? For you know both sort of maximum efficiency and maximum revenue, because I think uh, that these companies like an Outbrain and a Taboola and a Teeds and so on and so forth, with their flagship products, they do drive substantial revenue for publishers. I agree with everything you said, and I don't think publishers are positioned to fix this problem. I think the fix has got to come from the buy side, meaning DSPs. It's not even brands and agencies. There's too many of them. They're too fragmented. It, it means like wholesale decisions from you know, the, the mega DSPs, Trade Desk, DB360, Amazon, Yahoo, Critio, and so on, to take really aggressive action to kill auction duplication. And right. we can talk about the tactics if that'd be useful, but like it's going, that would be painful and aggressive and result in a lot of bad headlines, but it is becoming a financial necessity for DSPs to take that action because there's just such an outrageous amount of bloat in the bid stream that it's crushing the unit economics of ad tech platforms. But but hasn't this already been happening? I mean, the uh, tr certainly the trade desk has been doing SPO, and Google has has some controls, and Xander uh, has been doing this, and we've seen uh, some SSPs drop out. You know, Yahoo no longer has an SSP, and EMX is dead. Is it happening the way you think it should be happening? Maybe it's starting, but I think we all have a tendency to sort of like overestimate how representative the trade desk is of the industry. The trade desk is only $10 billion of buying power in an $85 billion market. I think they have done a, not perfect, but a very effective job, like writing the playbook for like what a thoughtful SPO strategy looks like and how DSPs can contain their costs and maintain full access to supply. But every other DSP is very, very, very far behind where the trade desk is. Right. And, you know, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but like one thing that's interesting, I just want to get your hot take on the trade desk turning off open bidding because Google's open bidding, in a sense, was a it, another way in which uh, the bid stream was being duplicated. Now, Google would argue it's a more efficient path, um, but in to counter Google's argument, the uh, the trade desk basically said to shove it, and they've turned off on all open bidding. Was that a good idea for the trade desk or a bad idea? Uh, that was a very good idea, but I want to sort of parse my words there a little bit. Okay. The actual objection to Google open bidding, or at least my objection to Google bidding, has very little to do with the fact that there's like an extra fee or whatever. It's that there is no publisher. This isn't literally true, but there are maybe three publishers on the planet out of, you know, tens of thousands who choose open bidding instead of pre-bid and instead of Amazon TAM. It's that they use open bidding and TAM and pre-bid and they integrate each exchange through all three points to exploit volume bias. And so... The problem to be solved is auction duplication. And one way to solve auction duplication is to say, like, can each exchange please send me just a single bid request for each impression? I can deal with duplicate auctions, right? Like if, if Index wants to send me one request and Pubmatic wants to send me one request and Magnite wants to send me one request, like that's not ideal, but I'll tolerate that. But if each of them sends three requests, no, I won't tolerate that. And so now it's sort of like, okay, well, how do I pick 
the right integration point. And frankly, it's a little arbitrary if you were to choose TAM versus pre-bid versus Google Open Bidding, but for a variety of reasons, both financial and strategic, it makes a lot of sense to, to turn off the Open Bidding connection. Right. But isn't open bidding a lot more efficient because open bidding, uh, for those of you who aren't deep in this, open bidding is Google's server-side bidding protocol that comes from its ad server GAM. And one of the big advantages to open bidding is that it, it takes place after reserved buys, so buys that have been reserved by the sales force. And as a result, the win rate is much, much higher because they don't waste QPS on things that where the open option has no chance of winning. First of all, is that characterization accurate because you're more deep in this than I am? And secondly, why is that wrong that open bidding would be more efficient and therefore should be kept as a channel? I think there is a very nuanced argument there, and I'm familiar with the other side of it, but REI land in the same place you do. I think Google open bidding enables DSPs to achieve superior inventory access or more efficient inventory access in spite of its added take rate, which is counterintuitive. And yeah, maybe we litigate that somewhere else. But I think what's not in dispute is it is much, much, much more QPS efficient than pre-bid connections and TAM connections for two reasons. One, it doesn't run an auction for impressions that are already consumed by a sponsorship, which right. TAM and pre-bid don't know how to do. And two, as I think you just said, it issues a very good bid price guide. It's a very smart floor so that the DSP doesn't waste cycles participating or sending back a bid that is essentially guaranteed to lose. That's probably the strongest counter argument to why you would choose to turn off open bidding. You might choose so, to turn on open bidding. So my take on the trade desk turning off open bidding was that it was more based on strategic rivalry than economics. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Well, the trade desk is big enough. They have a right to uh, kind of take on Google more directly, even if it's not entirely rational. We talked about TAM. You mentioned TAM a couple of times. So TAM is the brand name for Amazon's sort of meta exchange where they pass through bid requests not an exchange, it's a uh, sort of a wrapper. Um, why would anyone buy through TAM? TAM seems totally duplicative with no value add and Amazon charges a fee for it. Like, what's the point? I think you could make a variety of arguments about some benefits to the publisher of choosing TAM over pre because it moves a lot of things server side. I more or less subscribe to your logic that like, hey, if I'm choosing as a DSP between a TAM integration and a pre integration, probably lean toward choosing the pre-bid integration. But I think a really important point that sometimes gets lost, because how, how would you know the details unless you're in the minutia like I am, DSPs can't tell the difference. To a DSP, there is no signal to, there, there is a clear signal to distinguish an open bidding integration from a not open bidding integration. There is not a clear signal to separate a TAM integration from a pre-bid integration from a tag and a waterfall from anything else that is financially direct to the publisher. Right, right. The only way you could tell is if you ask or if uh, or there's a different there's a different seller ID, right? Not always. Not Many always. exchanges will share the same seller ID between a pre-bid connection and a TAM connection. All right. I want to go through your report. So you publish a state of the open Internet report. This, this comes out quarterly. Is that That's right? a once a year. So we write 13 reports a year, a monthly report plus this one annual report. And so this is the annual report. So let's go through the key findings. First finding demand concentration. More than 60% of open internet ad spend will be controlled by just three companies, Google, Amazon, and the Trade Desk. This is just the natural direction of change on the buy side of the market because buyers are incentivized to concentrate their spend. And I think that the corollary that sort of falls out of it is, well, the other 40% is also on a, on a path toward being concentrated. 
And so, you know, you've got a few dozen DSPs that make up the other 40%. Some of them will be winners. Some of them will be not. But the, the buy side is already concentrated as going to continue to be more and more concentrated because that's what is rational for buyers. And then what that means is you get a handful of companies who are sort of like ultra powerful aggregators of demand. How do you know that the open internet F spends 60%? Uh, that's, that's a long answer. Uh, we, so we sort of, <laughs> the, the short, of, here's the short of it. We rely on a bunch of, of third parties who track overall market size and we come up with what we think the total size of the open internet is. And then we bottoms up our way into it by knowing what the trade desk spend is and knowing what Google spend is. And then we get a good read of their concentration and sort of like the leftover share of spend that, that goes to all of the other fragmented buy side platforms. Chris, how has the share shift between those big companies uh, evolved over the course of the past few years? The relative size of, I mean, obviously Amazon was, you know, has, has exploded. And so, you know, they've grown faster than the other two that we were just talking about. But the interesting thing here has less to do with sort of the relative size of the trade desk versus Amazon versus Google Ads and TV360 and more to do with their combined share of open auction demand. Those three companies together in 2017, I forget the exact number, were like 20 or 25% of open internet spend. This year, they'll be 60%. And so like the, the real story is publishers see more and more concentration of demand, like radically more concentration of demand today than they did five years ago. And that's how the trade desk is able to roll out something like OpenView because when they're... Exactly. The, the open, open path, sorry. All right, second big theme, bidstream bloat. So we talked about the 25 monetization platforms per publisher. I found this really interesting. What do you call volume bias? Volume bias is defined as the tendency for DSP campaigns to allocate investments in proportion to the number of options. So what's we talked about irrationality in the DSP bidding logic, but can we, can we kind of dive a little bit deeper into why this happens? Yeah, I mean, I think this is AdTech's dirtiest secret. It's the most dysfunctional part of the industry. It is the root cause of a lot of things we've been talking about here. You, or you mentioned, I don't know, five minutes ago that there were, there were these tricks historically where an exchange would send two bid requests to a DSP. Like that's because of volume. Buy. That's why that works. And yep. you built a DSP and I didn't, so you can stop me where I'm wrong here. But I think like the basic assumption of people who built DSPs, at least built the big ones in the early days, was one bid request was a very good proxy for one impression and that I could pace a campaign in proportion to the volume of bid requests that I receive. And so like if, if I'm receiving you know, 10 times as many requests as I need to fill a campaign's budget, well, then I'll just set up a campaign to sort of randomly bid into one out of every request and ignore nine out of every request. That's a game that you can exploit as soon as it's possible for a publisher to issue two requests or three requests or 30 requests for each impression, because now the probability that that DSP pacing logic is choosing one of your requests is disproportionately large. And you're making it disproportionately small that the DSP would choose a request from some publisher that doesn't know about this trick and is only issuing one request per impression. I would say it's hard to even point out exactly where the flaw is on the DSP side because it's just so complicated. To, to give one example I like to give, very often when you're on a page that has two standard 300 by 250 units, you'll see the exact same ad in both units. And the typical ad tech response will be, oh, they didn't frequency cap. But the counter argument is that those two ad requests were simultaneous. 
And there is no technical way you could ever frequency cap simultaneously across, say, 10 requests for each ad slot in real time. There's just no way because the you would never find out that you won one of those auctions before you bid on the other one of those auctions. It's just it's what's called a race condition. And that's just one example of the limits to what's possible in a real-time bidding environment. And there's a, the same thing for budget, the same thing for, you know, um, for uh, targeting, the same thing for pacing. They're all kind of constrained by how fast they could react. I completely agree with that. And I also think it's important to underline that the financial incentive for publishers is to make that problem worse, not better. And really critically, this is a zero-sum game. You know, like there's only so much money that's going to leave DSPs this year. And publishers have very little ability to change that number. What they have an ability to do is modify their share of wallet. And the best way to modify your share of wallet is to modify your share of the bidstream. If you can occupy more of the bidstream, you can exploit this tendency of DSPs to over or participate more often in publishers that have high auction duplication. But then it creates this game of one-upsmanship. Like whatever the industry average is now, Publishers are incentivized to be above that average. And then that brings the average up. And so now publishers want to be above the new average. Yeah. And so what we, it's very hard to sort of come with a, a rock solid number here. But what we sort of get, get to in the report is sort of like the punchline is we think the volume of auctions has tripled between the beginning of 2020 and the end of 2022. And I just don't see any reason to believe that's going to change because publisher incentives haven't changed. It's a, it's a tragedy of the commons problem. Publishers get benefit by adding more SSPs and the world gets worse. Right. And Eric, I think you were kind of getting into this before, like the collectively rational thing to do is the opposite. The publishers would make more money as a group if they each partnered with a single, very high efficiency, low fee SSP. And the SSPs would be happy to sign up for that if that meant they had exclusive right of sale for a certain publisher. But the individually rational choice for each publisher is exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, one thing we played around at Beeswax was the idea like, wouldn't it make sense if DSPs charged SSP for QPS, like one cent, one cent CPM on QPS inbound um, to incentivize everyone? But obviously, how'd that go? No, we were, we never actually proposed it. It was one of those whiteboard things where it's like, that makes sense. But no, unless we're the trade desk, it's not going to happen. As the resident VC in the room, um, my, my reaction to this is feels like there's a business in all of this that is waiting to uh, to be started. I mean, that is, that's the end toggle business that, that Rubicon project acquired years ago. Like they, right. they recognize this really early and we're like, Hey, I bet you we can rip a lot of cost out of the bidstream yes. without any effect on revenue. And they were right. And, and it was a brilliant acquisition because basically, uh, Rubicon bought end toggle and implemented it on their own QPS. And, uh, I think it had a lot to do with, uh, Rubicon's rise in the ranks on the SSP side, DSPs just start buying more of their inventory. I remember when we turned it on at Beeswax, our win rate immediately went up on, on Rubicon, and that's good for everybody. So most other SSPs have now either bought or built equivalent yeah. capabilities, and there's a really weird knock-on effect that I think gets the industry even deeper into this problem. If a publisher, so is it, you know, each of these DSP, SSP integrations is QPS capped. You can only send us 100,000 QPS or 500,000 QPS or whatever. And so you got to pick smart, right? But all the exchanges pick the same impression. They pick the high value impressions. And so a DSP receives 10x or 20x duplicate requests for a cookie matched user on a Chrome browser. And they don't even know about the existence of medium value and low value impressions. And that problem gets worse as DSPs tighten up these QPS caps with their ad exchange partners. 
this is a good segue into Open Path, uh, which I feel like it was sort of obligatory. We've talked about Open Path maybe three of the last four podcasts, but uh, since you're an expert in this area, it seems obligatory to talk about it. Is Open Path the future where the trade desk is sort of cutting the Gordian knot and saying, hey, SSPs, all this nonsense you're doing, we're just going to route around it. We're going to have our own path and we're going to, uh, we're just going to ignore all your duplication. Things like Open Path are the future, but I don't think I end in the same place that you did. Okay. Um, and I think that's sort of, this is like the most important just like business reality of the current open internet and probably the next several years for a variety of reasons. Every ad tech platform is going to have to evolve into a two-sided marketplace, which is what OpenPath is. You know, Trade Desk has direct connections with buyers, obviously, and now has direct connections with publishers and can operate an end-to-end supply chain. Every ad tech company is going to have to move in that direction, which makes every ad tech company competitors with every other ad tech company and kind of collapses this historical notion of buy-side ad tech versus sell-side ad tech. However, all of these companies are going to have to remain interoperable with each other. You know, like, there's no company better positions to be like a complete end-to-end platform two-sided marketplace than Google. And yet both Google Ads and DB360 continue to bid into third-party exchange auctions. Every DSP is going to have to do that. Every SSP is going to have to do that. And so it's this really weird state of the industry, which I don't think is a transition period. I think it might be the long run. Each of these ad tech companies is competitors with every other ad tech company, but also needs to maintain interoperability with every other ad tech company. So if that's true, why did Yahoo shut its SSP? I'm speculating here, but I think it gets back to the, well, I guess we didn't really get into the details here. Like this volume, that, that, that bitstream bloat thing does really, really bad things to the unit economics of ad tech companies, particularly on the sell side of the market. And my suspicion is that the, uh, the guys at Apollo weren't going to tolerate these horrendous unit economics of, a, of an exchange and recognize that like, hey, we've got an amazing asset here. Um, let's just use it to connect Yahoo DSP demand to publishers. Let's let's make it into something that looks more like Open Path, where we're ripping out basically all the costs. We don't have to issue all of these requests to third-party DSPs. We don't have to deal with all like the billing complications. Um, we'll just have a high-efficiency pipe to every publisher that we care about. All right. Well, on that, we're going to take a break, and we'll come back with the news of the week. This podcast is sponsored by Flash Talking by MediaOcean. Names that should be familiar to Marketecture listeners. MediaOcean has been the agency system of record for more than 50 years, and brands have been using Flash Talking since the days of, well, Flash. They joined forces two years ago and also folded in the social ad stack from 4C. Now, Flash Talking does ad serving, dynamic creative, and ad verification across all channels, including CTV. So you can say the Flash and Flash Talking were first how fast you could do everything on their platform. Learn more at mediocean.com slash flash talking. All right, we're back. So news of the week. It was a big news week. There's a lot of really interesting news this week. So uh, hopefully we'll get some interesting conversation going here. I thought the most interesting story was an alliance between Pinterest and Amazon, uh, whereby Pinterest is opening up its ad inventory to Amazon demands. It wasn't really clear if it was the Amazon DSP or maybe their product listing ads. I didn't really get a sense of which that was. Um, It was sort of a, I like to call it a tunnel between the two walled gardens. And uh, this kind of speaks to kind of the strengths of both companies with very retail-oriented demand and supply. Um, Either one of you folks have a take on this? I agree. It's it's super cool. 
Our friend Connor at Luma actually had a, a tweet that covered th- three of the announcements this week, and maybe we can talk about all of them because they're all and it's super interesting if you're into the commerce media stuff. But you know, he he had like catchphrases um, for each one, and and for this one, he called it "close the close the loop" rather, right? So it's you know, on Pinterest you discover, on Amazon you buy, right? So if the if the holy grail for all this digital stuff is to be able to you know truly sort of like have closed loop understanding attribution drive the sale i'm not much of a pinterest user I actually don't use it at all but from what i understand it's like the place for discovery and inspiration and there's generous are like finding things and ultimately with amazon you can you could buy the thing and then prove it out so i think pinterest is like a winner here right if it can yeah. prove through this partnership that they truly do drive discovery i mean pinterest all of a sudden gets a heck of a lot more valuable both in terms of it's sort of like overall enterprise value, um, not to mention as a, as a place for, uh, for, for media. Also, it points out one Amazon building on its strength. If you're Pinterest and you have your option about who to let in, do you let, you know, Trade Desk or DV360? Well, Amazon has the closed loop and the, those are exactly no, right. I think there's the, the lesson here is it's unbelievably rare that a media company can operate an, an actual walled garden. You're, you're, by, by operating a walled garden, you're walking away from $80 billion of third-party demand. You may not need to tap into all of it, but when you have a, you know, call it a $30 billion pool of money at Amazon that you really, really want to connect to, like the temptation is just too high to say no to third-party demand. And I, there's, there's going to be more blurring of these lines. Roku's indicated they're going to be more interoperable with third-party demand. It's just too big a pool of money for most media companies to walk away from. Um, so the second deal that Connor mentioned while we're, we're playing off Connor was uh, the Trade Desk did an exclusive deal with a company called Attain to get Attain's buy now, uh, pay later data into its attribution models and its targeting. I made a uh, pretty funny joke, which was that uh, this is the Trade Desk. Thought, I saw that. <laughs> the Trade Desk is uh, building a walled garden using leftover bricks. And... Um, I, I think I, I tweeted that just because it was funny, but uh, Brian, the CEO of Attain, gave me a hard time because it was a little rude. Um, so I didn't mean leftover bricks. I meant very valuable golden bricks. But the point I was trying to make was the Trade Desk doesn't have a natural walled garden because it doesn't have any owned and operated properties. But when it does exclusive data deals like it did with Walmart a couple of years ago, it can start building something where it needs to. it's a must-use platform for certain classes of advertisers. I don't know if Attain has the data breadth to do that, but that, that was my point I was trying to make. Eric, what did Connor call this one? Connect the dots. Connect the dots. All right. All right. Yeah, so connect the dots between uh, purchase behavior, i.e. they've got the behavior of a bunch of buy now, pay later uh, shoppers and feed that into the trade desk for fueling, fueling advertising. I mean, it's a pretty cool idea. And I think um, the, the trade desk obviously does this partnership after they test this stuff out and confirm that it works, presumably. Yeah, and I think in the world of losing third-party cookies, having smaller but very strong signals is very important for modeling. Uh, If you're going to model conversions, having, you know, even just 5 or 10% of those conversions as verified first-party data conversions makes the model so much more valuable. Exactly. And what was the third deal that Connor put in his little little graphic? We're giving Connor a lot of airtime here. It was really good. Um, it's uh, Shopify doing the deal with uh, with Credio to open up um, monetization for Shopify merchants uh, using the Credio's ad platform. He called this "open the gates," which I thought was uh, was really apropos. Very nice. Well done, Connor. 
Uh, so that deal's kind of self-evident. I don't think we need to talk about that too much. So we talked about TAM, AWS TAM. There was some drama with AWS TAM and a pricing change where they went from one cent CPM on TAM to 2.5% of revenue. And then there were a bunch of emails that confused people. And I was so confused by this article. That was a very well-reported article in Digiday, but it still was confusing. Chris, do you have insight on this whole thing? I have been a little surprised by how sloppy the um, the the market perception, the rollout, the messaging. Like This kind of feels like it ran away from Amazon. I think my only coherent thought on this thing is this would be a very powerful bullet point on a set of slides that are going to go to DSP management teams of why they should choose pre-bid over TAM. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There will be movement among these DSPs to be like, hey, we, we killed the OB thing and that wasn't terrible and saved us a bunch of QPS costs. Like, now, how do we dedupe TAM and pre-bid and which one are we going to pick? Chris is the number one expert on SBO in the entire world and he doesn't understand this. So that tells you something, right? <laughs> All right, we can. Uh, here's another one I don't really understand, but I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. I understand it, but I don't. I want to talk about the implications. Um, we don't talk about in-app that much on this podcast, but in-app is a huge market, and there's been this movement in in-app for years to move away from mediation, which is their version of a waterfall, to uh, unified auctions. And uh, App Levin is probably the leader in unified auctions uh, with the Max acquisition they did several years ago. And Google, as a demand source, announced that they will no longer bid into mediation. So if you're an app provider and you're using a mediation solution and calling Google to get their demand, Google will no longer bid. They will only bid through unified auctions. This is, I think, like the nail in the coffin on mediation. Does it mean something bigger? Uh, does it mean that App Lovin has won uh, or that Google is throwing in the towel on certain parts of the in-app ecosystem? Or am I, or do we have no idea? Can I, can I take the first bite at this one? Yeah, go for it. So either I don't understand this or it's not getting nearly enough attention. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gone deep on this. I've talked to the App Lovin guys in detail. I read all the documentation. I think I understand this thing. And it seems like a giant deal. It seems like a big deal. What I understand this to be is that this is a lot of the press release talk about Google Ads and DB360. This is really about AdMob. It's like the the, yes. the sell side of Google's in-app monetization business does not want to be called essentially as a tag in a waterfall. It wants to be able to bid dynamically into, to use like web language, the publisher's ad server, the mediation layer. And this isn't just about App Love and Max. This is, they talked about chart boost mediation. Yep digital turbine mediation, unity mediation, they're basically saying we want to be able to have our essentially ad exchange submit dynamic bids into a third-party ad server. And like, again, I might be missing it, but if that's right, it's like, whoa, like, can we get a pre-bid adapter? I mean, that that is, <laughs> this is the thing that web publishers have been asking for forever. This would be the capability that allows web publishers to rationally move away from Google Ad Manager. And it it just seems like a, if I, again, if I'm well, understanding it right, well, let me, it's a giant precedent. Yeah, so the, it's a little more subtle. I think you used a couple of terms that might be confusing in your explanation. Um, so most in-app publishers do not have ad servers. Let's start there. Most in-app ad servers just use a auction mechanic to to serve the ads. And that auction mechanic is this what's called the unified auction. So it's an SDK that is offered by either Chartbeat or, uh, sorry, Chartboost or um, 
app Lovin, et cetera, that's, that does an auction, calls out to the AdMob SDK, let's say, to get a bid, and then the AdMob SDK returns bids, and then they take the highest bid, and that is what shows in the app. Um, and there, in, in some cases, it does go through a ad server like GAM, but I would say for most, especially game-oriented advertisers, it doesn't do that. It's, it's, that is the final auction. And so what Google has their own unified auction mechanic through AdMob, my understanding is it's pretty low market share. It has not been as sort of revolutionary as people think, and that AppLovin is sort of running away with the game here. So I think that it is very important in that it simplifies the auction mechanics for publishers, gets them the highest bid, and it removes, it forcibly removes some of the publisher complexity that, Chris, you've been complaining about in desktop. If you wanted to run something like a TAM in, in app, Google basically is saying they won't bid into that. The, they only want a unified auction that is RTB enabled. They won't take a tag-based or a secondary auction. They've always been willing in the app space to sort of interoperate with publishers that don't use GAM or AdMob as the mediation there. Yeah. Because they've kind of had to. They haven't had the, the market power there, but they've done it in a way that would be kind of like the equivalent to like a web publisher slotting, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 like AdSense ad tags into a yep. third-party ad server, um, which is a non-starter for web publishers. And I just think the precedent here looks like Google is willing to submit dynamic bids into an ad decisioning process that's operated by some third party, whether it's AppLovin or or Unity or, you know, the hypothetical that I was proposing is Prebit. Yeah, exactly. The uh, one other little note, which is fun, is if you if you have followed me for some time, you know how much fun I like to have at Google's expense of other naming conventions. Um, well, it turns out that the SDK that you put in your app, if you want Google demand, is both called the AdMob SDK and the GAM SDK. They're exactly the same. They just call them both <laughs> things. It has two names. Whereas Google AdX doesn't have a name at all, the Google SDK has two names. Last thing, uh, um, we usually don't talk about stock prices that much, but I think this is worth talking about. So Double Verify, which has been a pretty successful public stock, uh, I think last time I checked was the valuation in the billions, they got assaulted by a short seller um, that came out and made a lot of claims about them. So the short seller uh, was Spruce Point Capital, and Spruce Point made sort of, I would say they sort of tried to drag Double Verify through the mud. They didn't have really any substantial issues with the business or the accounting as a, as a short seller usually does. Uh, instead, they made various claims about Mark Zagorski, who, by the way, did an excellent interview on Architecture TV. You should listen to it, saying that he was a terrible executive, that his last company, Telario, was a giant failure. Uh, they talked about the infamous uh, trash shoot incident, um, which we're not allowed to talk about um, for legal reasons. And uh, and then they talked about how uh, they had this great chart where they they tracked which offices internationally Double Verify had closed. So they put a chart together about comparing 2020 versus 2023, which international offices Double Verify claimed to have with their addresses, um, which was, in my opinion, one of the weakest of weak sauce you could possibly imagine about where a company might not be doing well, given how many people have closed offices since the COVID in 2020. Okay, I've talked for a while. Uh, <laughs> did either of you have a chance to look at this? Do you have any thoughts on it? 
I didn't look at the report from the short seller. I, I read their blurb um, and I didn't uh, submit my email to, to receive the report. I, I might do it later. Brian Weezer, a uh, friend of the pod, um, did a nice summary. So if you're on his uh, email list, you got the the summary yesterday. And uh, I think he, he picked apart a, a few points similar to what you were saying, Ari, which um, included that one of the executive team used to work at, you know, this ad tech company called Blinkx, which I think similarly had a had a checkered past like a decade ago. So yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of this stuff is a is the reach. I mean, short sellers are free to, you know, publish reports and 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 do all this kind of stuff. And it's a fact of life for for being a public company. But one thing that I did know that I didn't see in Brian's email um, when I read the short sellers blurb is that they have a short position on DB and they they have a simultaneous long on IAS, which is a which is a pair trade. Major skin in the game here. And it has had an effect on DB stock. I think DB stock is down, you know, 10% over the past week. And it's um it's been nicely up for the year. It's still up 25% for the year, which is uh, you know, uh are top of class minus some of the DSPs. The trade desk, I think, is up around fifty and app loving is up around Fifty percent as well. So um, it's a short seller report. It's a fact of life of being a public company, and I think it's um, to your point, uh, a reach or, or weak sauce. That's pretty thing is news to me, and I didn't, I hadn't heard that, and it makes no sense to me. I mean, I think you can. <laughs> there, there are a whole bunch of things that you could complain about about the, the, the durability of the category of third party verification, but to place a bet that IAS is going to take share from DV, like, why would you believe that? Yeah, I think that um, you need some real information to know that, and that information is not available. So um, these two, every win for Double Verify is probably a loss for IS and vice versa. Uh, it's pretty tough to make that bet given you know the lack of any substantial announcements from either one of them. The other point I make, Blinkx is the name of the um, supposedly fraudulent exchange. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Probably the articles are still live from about 10 years ago where there was a uh, anti-fraud researcher by the name of, I think, Ben Edelman, I might get that wrong, who just absolutely would not let go of the Blinkex story and chased it down like a like a dog chasing a mail truck and um, eventually f- was able to, you know, demonstrate, I won't say prove, certain fraudulent activities. Blinkex, I think, is now a part of Tremor. So Blinkex was acquired by Rhythm One, which Tremor later acquired. Um, so uh, that's just a little antic history for you. With that, let's let's call this pod. This was a really awesome conversation. We went a little longer than usual. Chris Kane, incredible insights about SPO and Jounce Media. You should check out the annual report that he's published. Eric, thanks for being here. So Eric and Chris, thank you both. Thank you. Make sure to go to Marketexture TV. We have the 100th episode coming out next week with the Trade Desk talking about Gemini and UID2. And everyone have a good week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Marketexture. New interviews are added every week at Marketexture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.